Hello, I am Alfonso Montes. I am Irina Kircher. And we are the Duo Montes Kircher. We are doing a nice talk, midday talk here for all strings considered. Hi everyone and welcome back to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf, and today's episode features the music and thoughts of the Montes Kircher duo. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories, and by Audible.com. To get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com slash allstrings. There are over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Duo Montes Kircher consists of husband and wife duo Alfonso Montes and Irina Kircher, who have been playing together as a professional ensemble since 1984. They have a whole slew of recordings together. They have such a long history of playing together that many of the CDs actually serve to commemorate things like their 10th, 20th, and 25th anniversaries. Both Irina and Alfonso studied with one of the most well-known and beloved 20th century composers for the classical guitar, Antonio Laudo. And like Laudo, Alfonso Montes is also from Venezuela and a prolific composer. Much of the music you'll hear on today's show is Alfonso's composition. Kirscher and Montes have a really interesting history together. Both lived, performed, and taught together in Venezuela for many years. Yet in 2000, Montes's outspoken criticisms of the Chavez regime and the subsequent harassment he received meant they had to relocate to Irina's home country of Germany, where today they dedicate themselves also to performing and teaching there. On today's show, you'll hear about their music and compositions. You'll hear about their interesting choice to quit university-level teaching in favor of a more youth-oriented approach. You'll hear about Alfonso's time as a Venezuelan diplomat, and even how Irina had to fail L.A. Phil's very own musical director and conductor, Gustavo Dudamel, in chamber music. And, of course, you'll hear plenty of their great recordings. One quick disclaimer, Duo Montes Kircher was so busy while they were here, we didn't have the most ideal conditions for recording an interview. So there will be screaming children, dishes being washed, and all kinds of other noise. I did my best to edit out as much as I could, I think, though it might not be the audio quality you've come to expect from All Strings Considered, I think the subject matter makes up for it. You know, Cavatina duo I just talked to, they, they disagree quite often, and that's part of how they, they come to... I don't know, their energy maybe? Uh-huh. And I'm just curious about how you two rehearse, because it seems like you two probably have a different way of going. No, actually, when we play the guitar, we are all sweet and harmony, you know? Of course, it sometimes happens that we might get into a row about something completely different, nothing to do with guitar playing, uh-huh. and um, then we sit down and practice and you know, I say to myself, now I remember why I married that guy. Huh. <laughs> so it's, it's your medicine, almost. We, at the beginning, we used to have a slightly different system than now. Hmm. I'm talking about the beginning, 28 years ago or something like that. I would propose in text, you know, in words, things that I wanted, or, you know, I would talk about it. She did surprise me because she did say, why we just simply play and feel together? And that, although it was a big surprise, that was it. Ever since, we hardly talk. Mm. We just play. Do you play through an entire piece or do you... Because it seems like there are things that are very cleverly planned out, like in the Karuli last night. Mm-hmm. There were some great ideas mm-hmm. that I don't think could have happened without a certain amount of maybe discussion or just... No. No, we don't really discuss it. But you do you it know, the same enough times together that you end yeah, up of sort of having no, look, the same I mean, approach? After, say, 20-odd, almost 30 years, things tend to get surprising sometimes. We sit there together 
and we start playing the same piece, although nobody said that we were going to play that piece. <laughs> it, it is not only with guitar playing, but thank God there is WhatsApp now. Because if we would not agree on who does the shopping, we come home with exactly the same things, both having bought them. <laughs> we tend to think the same thing at the same time, and that happens in music as well. Hmm. We, we do some sophisticated ensemble and that it's not the kind of obvious thing always, but that is the result of playing every day of the year together. We don't talk anymore, we just... We have a sensitivity that we share about why making music. And it's, it's about emotions. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the end you don't have to understand what we do. Mm -hmm. You have to feel it. The only way to do it is to be convinced yourself of that sadness, or of that joy, of that gaiety, or whatever you want to transmit. It's agreeing on an emotional palette and going for it. So this interesting style of rehearsing reminded me of an article I actually just read which describes a study done in Germany at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development by Dr. Johanna Sanger. They brought 32 guitarists together, yep, guitarists, and arranged them in pairs to play a classical duet by Christian Scheidler. And of course, while they played, they monitored their brain activity. What was interesting that they found was that all the pairs of musicians synchronized brain oscillations meaning that the two musicians actually matched neural rhythms in the parts of the brain that control social cognition and music production, a phenomenon which she calls phase locking. And her hypothesis is that anyone who practices what she calls interpersonally coordinated behaviors like these, things like playing music, athletes playing sports, other similar group activities, develop fundamentally different brains. If this happens with randomly paired duos almost immediately, I can imagine that Duomontes Kircher, after 30 years of playing duets together, have developed an incredibly high level of synchronization. And it's then not so surprising that they haven't had to talk during their rehearsals for the last 10 years or so. So how about we hear them in action? I'm going to play you a piece called Tepuyes, which is actually a trio that they played with Scott Tennant when I saw them, although this recording, the third player is Ulrich Wedlich. I'll let them introduce the piece before I play it. The trio we played yesterday was called Tepuyes. Tepuyes, that's right. Okay. The piece has a very colorful story to it. That piece was originally an orchestra piece of mine. I wrote some years ago, by the request of Los Angeles Guitar Quartet, a piece, a quartet for them, which is called Llanura, so planes in Venezuela. There isn't a professional recording of Llanura, but you can hear LAGQ play it live on YouTube. I searched Yanura, which is double L-A-N-U-R-A, and the letters L-A-G-Q, and it was a top hit. Montez's piece starts about seven minutes in. And it's a very sort of up-tempo piece. So by the time Los Angeles were going to premiere the piece in a festival in Germany, Nürnberg, the lunchtime hour before the evening of the concert, we met and they wanted kind of to, you know, play a little bit of piece for me, just to make sure everything was in place. You know, it went very well, it, you know, they played fantastic. I said to John Dillman, you know what, I was thinking it would be great to have a sort of slow movement before, so a prelude-like movement before going into Janura. Mm -hmm. And then John Dillman said, well, you know, we are all open, we love your music. And, and I say, I could do it now. You know, really kind of joking, yeah, yeah. And then he said, if you do it, we play it tomorrow. And I kind of already knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to adapt this orchestra piece for the four guitars. So it was a joke to say, if you do it now, we play it tomorrow. We went to a concert, to hear a concert in the festival. And before the concert was over, I asked Irina, can we leave? And she said, don't you like the concert? I said, I have to write this piece. <laughs> and she said, what piece? I said, John told me that if I write the piece, they play it tomorrow. 
And I'm dying for that. I, I love those guys. I mean, they sound like gods. So we, we, we left, half an hour drive home, and I locked myself and I, eight hours later, came out with a piece. <laughs> so, so I faxed it. I sent a fax to Scott in his hotel. I said, Look, Scott, you're getting the piece here, you know, a, fax, a big black fax for you. So they got the piece, you know. But when they went through it, they said, Well, you know, it's not the kind of thing you're going to do without properly working on it, you know. So that's the story of, and clearly, when, when we decided to come here, I have done a, a reduction, a trio version, because of a project that I have of recording of music of mine. Uh -huh. So I, I said, well, this could be the ideal to do the trio version with Scott, you know, because we were going to share this concert that we did last night. Was, are the Tepuyas right next to the plains? The Tepuyas are only in the south of Venezuela, mm. and the, the plains are in the south west hmm. of Venezuela and basically the idea was to a little bit photographic mm -hmm. uh, memories hmm. because I don't live in Venezuela really long for a long time mm -hmm. and uh, and I thought gee the Tepuya thing went so well because you know from these drops developed into mm -hmm. something uh, with more body and uh, movement and then comes back to that little drop when when it dies when it disappears um, the the tepuyas are a sort of mineral accumulation that forms a big mountain. Some of them go, go out to 4,000 meters high. But they don't peak. Somehow they don't go into a peak. They remain flat. Uh, I think you do have them in California in the desert as well. Yeah. They are called we? like me, mesa, mesa. Oh, mesas, yeah. Yes, yeah. That's, that's, okay. the, that's what it is. Oh, okay. okay but, but, but it's a mesa, okay. But the difference is that these tepuyes are full of vegetation. So they are not brown like the mesas. Uh -huh. Sometimes in Australia they have some uh -huh. like that as well. Also very desertic. Mm -hmm. The tepuyes are actually full of life, mm -hmm. full of forest. Hmm. And apparently South America and Africa were, were joined together. And through this millions of years process, mm -hmm. they got split. But the similarities of fauna, flora, in that part of South America with the west part of Africa, mm. after the Atlantic Ocean, uh -huh. are extremely, uh. extremely big and extremely clear to see. The points are kind of monumental pyramids, like the pyramid in Egypt, but in tropical, mm. in the forest. <laughs> because you have these masses of mountain, very square kind of thing. Uh -huh. And it, it, it looks like it was man-made. It, it, it <laughs> couldn't be nature doing that. Uh -huh. But yeah, it is nature. <laughs> so here's Alfonso's piece, Tepuyes, from the duo's album titled Concertino.
You know, I was six years old and I picture myself still, I was sitting there listening to a recording of Pepe and Angel Romero playing the Concierto Madrigal. And I was sitting there listening to this recording and I knew that I would be a guitarist and that I would have a guitar duo that I would marry somebody who would play guitar with me and that that was what I wanted and that was what I was going to do. So that decided at the age of six I just had to make sure that I picked the right guy, which I did. <laughs> yes! <laughs> so we met in a summer school in England and um, we met again in Norway on a tour and after that I decided to go to Venezuela and study with Antonio Lauro mm. there. So that's how all this happened. Were you at the time associated with Lauro as well? Yes, I mean, Lauro and, and I have a long-standing association because when I began to study guitar, I already knew of Lauro and of his music. And as it happened, I was born in the same town. I mean, we are both Guayaneses, uh -huh. that is from Ciudad Bolívar. Well, the similarities of being Guayaneses both, playing music, I already had interest in composing, so I was asking him bits and pieces, you know, mm -hmm. how can you help me and so on. He was very supportive, he was also a good unofficial teacher for me. I played all his music for him and got all the tricks and tips that he wanted to be considering his music, mm -hmm. so did Irina for that matter. Mm -hmm. And we, we spent a lot of social time together as well. Mm. We sort of partied together. And, mm -hmm. and then in Caracas, when Irina was living there with me, we had a house in a part of Caracas which was literally two blocks away from Lauro. You know, Lauro used to walk when the sun was going down between half past five and six, and then he he would call and say, let's go for a stroll together and talk. Always talk about music, about yeah. politics. You know, we were very good. <laughs> and that came to a halt when he got ill and he died very quickly. He developed some kind of heart condition. Mm. Um, and he did have cancer as well. Yeah, and pretty quickly yeah. in 1986. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was a um. But then we remained friends with his daughter for all, and his son, Leonardo, and up to this day. And I revealed, I think Laura was a great composer, and he did a lot for the guitar in Venezuela. And, mm -hmm. and he taught Irina, he taught me, he taught lots of other Venezuelans. He's a great guy. Yeah. Great guy. And a good teacher? In the old-fashioned hood, you know, he would use the Napoleon Coste method. He would use that as a fix text and you will have to play all the lessons from all the way through yeah. oh. and when you go to the end he will say let's start again <laughs> let's do it again obviously that was taken as one of the aspects of the lesson the other was repertoire uh -huh. and um, and there was a lot of emphasis in his own music he was a good guitarist himself he has an obsession about the bass line yes huh. he would make everybody play the very loud bass line, uh. even in polyphonic solos. Mm. I think that has got to do with the fact that he was a singer as well, yeah. and he would always sing the bass, so, so that was zero, very right? important for him. <laughs> On their 20th anniversary CD, titled Magico, Alfonso and Irina have a duo version of one of Lauro's famous solo works, Angostura. Their arrangement, I think, is a wonderful homage to one of the great South American composers of the 20th century. Angostura is a reference to the original name of what is now called Ciudad Bolívar, which is Lauro's birthplace.
huge in Venezuela, obviously. We were um, in this youth orchestra system, both teaching and teaching guitar there at the university as well, but that was kind of a different level with university students. When we got back to Germany in 2000-2001, we started to teach kids. There are some of them who are very advanced in their abilities and they do plan to study the guitar to make a living from it, but I think we both feel a bit more comfortable teaching people who do not necessarily want to go into guitar as their profession, but as part of their education. Mm. So we both teach children from the age of say five until they finish high school mm -hmm. and then they decide what they want to do if they want to study in university or if they go into a completely different profession that has nothing to do with music so mm. it was just part of their education and hopefully it will give them something to hold on to when things get hard and for the rest of their life just enjoy music and mm. guitar we work bo both at the Stuttgart Music Schule. This is a music school of Stuttgart. It is an official, I mean, it's part of the state, the city of Stuttgart institutions. And uh, it's a mixture in the financing. I mean, the, the state finance 60% mm. and the parents of the kids will pay 40% mm. of the fee. Perhaps I should clarify a little bit when Irina said that we feel more comfortable teaching that level than the university level we were doing in Venezuela. Let's begin with Venezuela. Teaching there boys and girls who were supposed to go on and make a living of it. In a country where hardly running water functions or electricity, uh, you begin to question yourself, what am I doing here? You know, I mean, mm. What are these kids going to do in two or three years' time they get out of here? Mm -hmm. But then when we went back to Germany in, 19, in 2000, 2001, we also saw that the overall international guitar scene is getting more and more competitive. The level is getting extremely high. And you have to rely more and more, not only on your abilities, but in the capacity to make contacts and to develop contacts in order to get work. Having been in Venezuela and moved from Venezuela into Europe, obviously our own ability to produce contacts for would-be professional guitarists was kind of non-existent because we were new ourselves into that environment. Um, so we decided not to go for the open positions that sometimes were, in Germany for universities, but to stick to the pre-college level. Mm. Specialize on that, you see the results quicker. And like Irina says, I mean, we don't have the burden of somebody making a decision which later they might even regret, um, not achieving all their dreams. And as you know, in Germany, because the universities are public, they are not paid. Mm -hmm. I mean, so lots of people get in, because it doesn't cost, the expectations are high, the level not always that high, and when they finish, they find reality. And reality is, I am not able to keep up with the trend of the day, the high level. Mm -hmm. I will not make it as a concert player, and then I would feel, and Irina would feel, a little bit responsible yeah. if you didn't warn them from the beginning, look, it's great that you have a place in university, but you only have it because here it's subsidized. If you were to compete in real terms mm -hmm. and pay for your studies, you wouldn't stand a chance because the level is not high enough. I think there are really very few people who live only out of playing concerts mm -hmm. with the guitar. Maybe with other instruments there is a different reality, but for guitarists, let's face it, there are very few left who live only from playing concerts. Mm -hmm. And with the teaching jobs, um, I do have the feeling that it is getting more and more difficult. When I hear about the reality that you have here, I mean, say, 
20, 30, 40 years ago, you would have a guitar teacher who had a fixed job and he was all comfortable and could live out of that entirely and, mm -hmm. and very nicely. Okay. But the tendency, at least in Germany nowadays, is um, that you don't have a fixed employment anymore, but that you just get paid for the lessons that you give. Kind okay? of freelance. Kind of freelance stuff. I'm sure that sounds very familiar to some of you. Anybody who teaches adjunct at any college knows exactly how that freelance thing works out. To have a job, um, luckily we both do have a fixed job like that with a lot of security, mm -hmm. but um, I am the head of guitar in the guitar department of, of the music school mm -hmm. and I can see that in the music schools which are in Germany around us the tendency to employ somebody full time and have him there mm -hmm. is, is going down. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I believe here in California at least it is something like that as well. So. You teach happily as a teacher at college or university and you know exactly all these kids who are practicing very hard and they get out of here, I don't know what they are going to do. So, so we, we, we feel... So you feel guilty, guilty or potentially guilty. If we yes. would to promote that. Mm -hmm. So what we, I mean, we do believe is that there are people who are going to get through and going to be fantastic mm -hmm. um, players, including our own students or some of our own students. But we want to have the brighter part, you know, the wider part of our work as a complementary subject of general education for the youngsters. It should be. Yes. And if they go through that and they distinguish themselves and they prove they have the will, like we did, because we were facing the same obstacle. I mean, if you have somebody, musician in general, or a guitarist, and he knows that he is going to be utterly unhappy in life if he has to do anything else than play guitar, <laughs> then that is the right choice for him. Are you that person? Yes. <laughs> but. If you have somebody who is bright and good in school and has abilities for other things and doesn't have this urge to play the guitar all the time, maybe it would be a good idea to be a dentist. And, <laughs> and play guitar for fun. Yes, exactly. Gustavo Dudamel. <laughs> All right. Was he, was he the bad kid in class? When we were still in Venezuela... 1997 until 2000. Yeah. I, I was teaching at this UDEM in Venezuela, this which was a music university. university. And I was teaching guitar there. But I would also teach um, oral training and chamber music. And Gustavo Dudamel was there as a student at this university. Among Venezuelans, it was already known that he was the whiz kid, mm. you would say. He was very bright. You can say there are people who can listen well. There are others who listen better. And there are the ones that can hear when the grass grows. Okay? He's one of those. He can write down just about anything. He has, of course, perfect pitch. So whatever he hears, he could write it down immediately. And he was a good violin player as well. Very good. So we did some chamber music with a cellist or with other people together there. But because of his many compromises, having to conduct orchestras in the middle of Venezuela or okay, something it, it like that. clarify that. Already at that time, he was kind of chosen by Abreu, the head of the whole system, yeah. as, as the chosen one. It was clear uh -huh. of his talent, uh -huh. and it was clear that he, he, he had to have a leading position in Tongala. And although he was a student, the decision has been taken. He was going to be the guy uh -huh. yeah. in Venezuela. Uh -huh. And he was going to be supported to make an international career, of course, uh -huh. financially and everything. 
and so he was very busy. See, as he was result. very busy as a result, and he was having these classes in chamber music. We were doing this Mozart duo for violin and cello, and all of a sudden the guy disappeared. But he disappeared for weeks. Somebody said, no, he's in Barquisimeto conducting this orchestra. But from the academic point of view, you say I am taking this chamber music course and I'm going to do the exam in, say, July and you haven't shown up in April and you did not show up in May and you did not show up in June and that's it, you're busted, okay? <laughs> so that was exactly what happened there. And he wasn't very happy about that. <laughs> So you had to fail him out of his... I did fail Gustavo Dudamel in chamber music. I am sorry to say. Not because he was bad, but he did not show up. <laughs> and it must be said, perhaps, as a, as a point of interest, that there were lots of pressures being made. Yeah, of course. By Abreu and people like that, calling me and calling me... To, to take that decision back. Uh -huh. But obviously, I would have, say, a hundred students there. Okay. It's not fair to And this no-show... I mean, there were others who were a no-show at an exam and I would fail them invariably. So I couldn't take that back. There was mm -hmm. no way. Yeah. And I didn't. Doing? The life of an artist is not only to be brilliant and to play very good, but you have to be reliable as well. If you say that you're going to be there, you have to be there. And if you're not going to be there, just call and say. Okay. Sorry, Gustavo. Nah, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you heard a lot. <laughs> and uh, so I'm interested in that. how you changed, and that was part of the reason you ended up in Stuttgart in 2000 yeah. as well. Yeah, well, I mean, um, I have trained as a musician since very early days in my life. I went to the Royal College of Music in London, and I did music and so on. When I went back to Venezuela after studying in 1980, the Venezuela Exterior Ministry for External Affairs, they began recruiting people in the culture in order to found the cultural department of Venezuelan international promotion. So they needed people who had experience in different aspects of culture, music, literature, theater, etc. And trying to find who were the kind of guys who could be converted from being artist into artist diplomat. To put simply the technical knowledge of culture into diplomacy, it was a clever plan. And I got together with some kind of six people more to form that body, that council, that will act in promoting Venezuelan culture in the world. Mm. It went on and on and on, and I become, became director of the Venezuelan Cultural Center in London, the Bolivar Hall and Casa Miranda. Then I was appointed cultural attaché in Germany, where we were three years, and then I was called back to Venezuela as general director of international cultural affairs. So I worked there another three years. That was the time when Chavez came into power because of the elections. I need to say at this point, I never stopped being a musician. I was being a diplomat, very busy, but we were practicing every day still. Mm -hmm. And we were doing concerts whenever we could. I mean, we were doing not as many concerts as we have done ever since I stopped being a diplomat. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't out of the scene. We were not out of the scene. I mean, we were always attending festivals and things like that. When Chavez came into power, it became clear to me that that was not possible as a diplomat for me to represent what they were trying to put forward. And it was basically a question of principles. I mean, I couldn't go along with the fact that I was going to support uh, acts of corruption, so acts of international law-breaking, like the support of Venezuela regiment, Chavez regiment, to the guerrillas in Colombia, which are a terrorist organization, like the 
you know, joining forces with Cuba to do all kinds of funny things. Um, I mean, I simply wasn't... And the corruption, the corruption. I mean, remember the Ministry of External Affairs telling me that one of my main jobs was to promote the international career of his wife as a painter. And I told him, sorry, I don't think I'm going to do that. Anyway. So what happened is that they, they realized I wasn't kind of following orders and, and taking their wishes into reality. Mm -hmm. And they began to harass me and you know, I realized, okay, these, these people are not, you're not dealing with normal people. They are real crooks who you are dealing with. And well, the t time has proven, you know, there you go. I mean, look at what they have done and look at what they are as people and as politicians and it's clear. So we decided we have to call it a day in Venezuela and simply retake, retake or fully take our musical career mm -hmm. and pedagogical career. We love teaching, that's why I think we get results. So we, in, nine, in 2000, we, we went back to Germany. It took a while to find the right job and so on, but you know, because it's an accumulation. We weren't starting from scratch. Right. Most people in the guitar world knew who we were. And uh -huh. so, and I must say, there was a lot, a lot of solidarity. People like Maurice Somerville, or even here in America, the Dario Corporation, um, they got the voice. They got to know that we were all of a sudden without work kind of thing. I mean, we got a lot of support. I have to say that, you know, we are ever so thankful. How is the... I mean, you've been in Stuttgart now 10 years then? More? more than yeah. 10 years, 13. almost 13 years. Yeah. Do you feel okay to visit back in Venezuela? Or do you sort it's, of stay? It's not possible. Some technicalities there with the law. From one side, the Venezuelans, they sabotage the people who live abroad, people who are not in agreement with them. Right. So what they do, you know, if you go to a consulate to renew your passport, there is no... There is no book, booklet. The council didn't come today. You know, they they, they simply you know fool you around. Uh -huh. So what I did, I took the German nationality, which means that when you ask for the German nationality, you cannot have another passport. Uh -huh. That is the German law. But the Venezuelan law says if you want to enter Venezuela, having been born in Venezuela you have to have a Venezuelan passport. That's oh, 22. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, obviously, why did the Venezuelans do that? Because they changed a lot afterwards. Uh -huh. It was simply to avoid whoever left and got another passport because they weren't given a passport to them. Uh -huh. I mean, the Venezuelans were not giving me a new passport. Uh -huh. They were sabotaging my existence. As a musician, I have to travel. Yes. So when they changed the law, they just make sure that I wouldn't go back because they knew people like me. I mean, it's not a personal thing against me only. Mm -hmm. It's against all Venezuelans who left Venezuela and has to take another nationality in order to survive because they were not given a legal document to those Venezuelans to leave and to move and to travel and so on. Right. So it, it, it's, it's, it's effectively exile. Exactly, exactly. I mean, and that's exactly what the Venezuelans wanted. Mm -hmm. So here we are, you know. Uh -huh. But Southern California is fine. Yeah, and Stuttgart is fine. is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. No problem. <laughs> So we're going to conclude the show today with one of Alfonso's suites for two guitars. This one titled Sweet Latina. It's a lovely series of dances evoking images from all over Latin America, as it draws on sounds from Argentina and Brazil to Cuba and Mexico, and of course those from Venezuela. I'm going to have Alfonso tell you a bit about his suite before we hear it, but before that, let me just say thanks for listening to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories. And by audible.com. To get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com allstrings. There are over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player.
It's been my pleasure to introduce you all to Duo Montes Kircher. Just to let you know, it's almost time for the All Strings Summer Break. So, you won't see any new episodes in June, but I'll be back in July with lots of new material. Don't forget to like the show on Facebook, follow on Twitter at All Strings. Until next time, here's Alfonso to tell you a bit about his suite. It's a collection of Latin dances. Mm-hmm. And in the case of the milonga, well, surely this is Argentina. Basically, that milonga is a homage, is my homage to Astor Piazzolla. And at that time, uh, he had put out a, a CD where there was a fantastic track where he's quintet called Soledad, Loneliness. And I felt, you know, funny enough, gee, I think this guy is going. Hmm. On listening to that music, very longing, uh, poignant, painful thing. And uh, when he, when I heard that he was so ill, I just picked up a guitar and, you know, something began to happen. I said, Jesus, you know, this is Piazzolla. <laughs> so I, I wrote it and Irina and I played it. And we both agree, this is a heartfelt farewell to Piazzolla. Then there comes Coroto, which is a very dear piece to, to us, because it's my mother. And then I represent the Venezuelan world. And funnily enough, although with Lauro tradition and all that, there hasn't been original two guitars, Venezuelan world, being written 20 years ago or something when, when I wrote that. Mm. So that is a Venezuelan waltz for two guitars. Mm-hmm. Then there is the third movement here, would be El Son. Uh, Venezuela being a Caribbean country, and we have a lot of this Cuban sounding. I mean, for, for Americans, it's more familiar to ident- identify with Cuban music, but it's also Venezuelan. Salsa, son, bachata, merengues, it is also a Venezuelan thing because we share that culture, you know, that mixture of Hispanic, African, and all other pieces and pieces that were in the Caribbean mm-hmm. are there as well. Mm-hmm. Then there is the bossa. Mm-hmm. We guitarists love bossa nova. Yeah. And it sounds great on the guitar. Then it's the canción, a heartfelt bolero from the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Slow, melancholic, romantic. And to end, bambuco is a rhythm which is not very well known. Um, bambuco is basically a 6-8, very syncopated 6-8, with a lot of gemiolas. It's, it's just a position of three and twos, mm-hmm. two threes, two, three twos, exactly. Mm-hmm. Is it consistent or is it kind of freely? It's freely. In uh-huh. my case, it's freely because the Colombian or and, Andean from the Andes, mm-hmm. bambuco, is is a little bit capricious with the rhythm. Uh, lots of very interesting syncopations, especially on the accompanying. Mm. And the melody is always lyrical, beautiful. You know, I like to think this is a good representation of that. But all originally written for two guitars, mm-hmm. that is taken into account the possibilities, the orchestration possibilities of two guitars. You know, mm-hmm. this parallel arpeggio things, which, you know, is unique to guitars because of the overtones and all that. I, I am a good, experienced accompanist for Latin American rhythms. Mm-hmm. And I have done recordings with other people on that. So what I did, I put my experience as an arranger and guitarist for folk music of Latin America, unsophisticated enough as to played with a queen like Irina. Okay, here's Alfonso's Sweet Latina. First a milonga, then a piece titled Coroto, which is a Venezuelan waltz, then a Cuban son, then a Brazilian bossa nova-inspired work, then a movement titled Cancion, which is a bolero, and finally the rhythmic bambuco. Enjoy! <laughs> 